Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour. Well, today we're going to be diving into the captivating world of leadership. This week we saw Donald Trump, who was indicted by a federal court for the first time in American history. And then across the water we had Boris Johnson, who remains popular with the voters, but he was also accused of lying to the parliament. So I'm going to have a guest with me today called Neil Jurd. He's an OBE, he's a renowned author and also a former army officer at Sandhurst. And he's going to be sharing his insights on the political leadership landscape in 2023. Plus, as Dublin Airport unveils its massive plans for expansion, I'll be talking past present and future with Ellie Donnelly from the Business Post and Paul Hackett, who's president of the Irish Travel Agents Association to discuss the evolution and future plans of the airport. And then stay tuned as we explore a very special investigation by the Financial Times. It uncovered shocking allegations of sexual assault and harassment within a prominent London hedge fund company. And Antonia Cundy from the Financial Times is part of that investigation team and she's going to tell us more about the investigation itself and all the fallout that has happened since it was published. Don't forget you can email takingstock at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter at StockNT. And indeed, we've had a lot of reaction to last week's programme and an email from one of our regular listeners who wanted us to do an extra piece on uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Didn't feel that we explored that topic enough last week. So that's certainly something we'll be coming back to in the future. So first up today, we're going to look at that issue about Dublin Airport. Earlier this month, it emerged that a privately owned 260 acre site in between the airport's two main runways is being put up for sale. This plot has long been mooted as an ideal spot to build the third terminal. But the DAA says there's no pressing need for such a thing. Other aviation industry experts disagree. So is there any real need for one? And what's the current state of play? Well, I'm joined in studio now by Paul Hackett, who's president of the Irish Travel Agency. So Association and Ellie Donnelly, senior business reporter from Business Post. Paul and Ellie, that sounds like a TV <laughs> show. You're very welcome to taking stuff. Thanks, Mandy. Thank you. Now I'm going to start with you, uh, Paul, in the present moment because mm. uh, this time last year we were all very nervous going out to Dublin Airport. You know those queues that we saw, yep. a thousand people missing their flights. And earlier this year in March, I think they produced a 15-point plan to say it was all going to be sorted. Is it sorted? Are we safe to go to the airport? Absolutely. What, what, like, I'm not here to speak on behalf of the DAA, but I was through Dublin Airport last week. We have thousands of customers through every day, as do travel agents all around the country. And everybody can attest to the normality and just straightforwardness of transiting through Dublin Airport. Like, it was a joy. Check-in was easy. Security was straightforward. They've now even got some of those new security machines that don't need you to remove liquids and, and laptops from your bag. Shopping was easy. Cleanliness was good. You know, the only the only issue I think at the moment at Dublin Airport may be around the car parking and even that is very minor. So in terms of passengers getting through the airport, it is back to normal pre-COVID. The volumes are very strong. Volumes are normal. So it's a really good experience. Mm, that's great. Nothing to worry about and like stick to the two hours beforehand for European and stick to the three hours beforehand for transatlantic. In fairness, it was an absolute nightmare last year and the DAA have reacted and they have put in the policies and the processes and they've hired the staff and they've trained the staff. And for consumers travelling this year, it should be no problem. 
that's good news and we might come back to that at mm. uh, Car Park later on. I think they co- compared it to we're not a country fair when <laughs> Ryanair said we could just t- turn the fields into to car park spaces. But we'll come back to that in a second. Ellie, I'm going to bring you in here now to look at some of the statistics um, because as Paul said there last year, you know, it came back much quicker, I suppose, than a lot of us expected. And we were looking at those figures for 2019 and um, that I think it was 32 million passed through. So could you just take us through what the capacity of Dublin Airport is now um, and whether it can cope with the volumes that are just going through at present? So the current capacity of Dublin Airport is 32 million and in 2019 they actually exceeded this. They welcomed 32.9 million passengers pass through the airport. Now under their current rules they can't have any more than 32 million. So the DAA have said that they can you know, increase passengers up to 40 million but that they would need permission for that. And also at the moment, the passenger numbers this year, they are tracking very, very strong. It looks like it could easily be 32 million again this year. So it's a decent case for making, you know, a bid to expand. Depends on who you ask. Okay, exactly. (laughs) So what is everybody saying? The DAA have said that there is no need for a third terminal, at least at the moment. They would be in favour of expanding the two terminals, Terminal 1 and Terminal 2, which opened in 2010. Ryanair have said they would be in favour of a third terminal. However, they don't want it operated by the DAA. They want it independently owned and operated. Aer Lingus then have said that the existing infrastructure, you know, that should be where the investment is going on and expanding infrastructure rather than a third terminal. Um, Conor McCarthy, I spoke to him recently. He's the chairman of Emerald Airlines. He also founded Dublin Aerospace, which is based on the campus. And he has said that a third terminal is not currently needed and that ultimately passengers would end up footing the bill for such a facility. Mm. First of all, it's not easy to say a third terminal. I've just realised that. <laughs> but why, Paul, why don't DAA want to do it this way? Buy a, a plot of land and and uh, expand into a third terminal, maybe on a private capacity. Why, do, why are they against this, do you think? I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't understand that because, as Ellie said, you know, the capacity at Dublin Airport is maxed at 40 million. It's currently permissioned for 32 million, they can increase to 40 million. It's going to get to that reasonably soon. Like even recently, you know, Hainan Airways announced the restart of their Beijing flights. There's constantly new flights, com- the old flights pre-COVID coming back and capacity is huge. Like we, we sometimes forget that Dublin Airport, thanks to Aer Lingus and their transatlantic uh, transiting facility, is the fifth European hub to feed into the United States. Like Aer Lingus are feeding out of all of their European routes right through Dublin Airport, using the pre-clearance and feeding into their extensive US network. Ryanair are growing continuously and other airlines are looking at the Irish market. You know, so there's, there's no question in my mind that this is going to happen. We, we only need to think back perhaps to the, the arguments and the debates that were going on around Terminal 2. And when that opened, it was a white elephant. But like, that's what infrastructural planning is about. A, a new terminal is going to take 10 to 15 years to get to fruition. If we just sit in our hands and do nothing as a state then we're going to be in a position that we're going to see poor customer service at the airport or stretch services. Already some of the long-haul carriers that should be in T2, like Qatar and Air Canada, Emirates Etihad, have been moved back into the older terminal in T1. And that's slots and gates. So there, there are stretch issues. I'm not quite sure what the rationale is around the DAA saying no, other than perhaps there's other reasons that aren't entirely apparent to those of us that are external observers. But as a state... Yeah, we're going to need it. Like we live on an island. We've only really one way other than sailing to get off this island and that's flying. 
Yeah, maybe it's a bit of business bargaining that's built into all of this, Ellie. You know, when when they're, you know, expressing their their opinion, it, it they don't want to seem like maybe potentially eager buyers. But talk to me a little bit about that site that exists. Just take us back to who owns the site. What was it originally and bought for, and and where 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 is all that at? So I suppose the main names behind the site are the McAvady brothers, Ulick and Des. They acquired the land in 1995 and it was always their ambition to have an independent third terminal for both long and short haul flights on that land. Um, I spoke to Ulick McAvady recently. He told the Business Post that the DAA have held us up for 27 years, he said, and that they've refused to countenance an independent terminal other than one run by de- them. So he's obviously said that, you know, he's quite disappointed, but he just feels like it's time to, to pass the baton on to somebody else. Um, the DEA, they, I don't know what, you know, when they were talking in the door last week, they said that they were interested, they would take a look at the land, but that the prices being quoted for it were, you know, crazy. That mm. They said they wouldn't spend crazy prices on it. And then you were writing about the Dublin Airport's master plan to grow to 55 million passengers a year. So, like, it doesn't add up, does it? If it wants to expand... It's got a. It was an Oxford report actually. That was an Oxford Economics report that was commissioned for the Department of Transport, and it was uh, brought to the government in 2018. And that found that Dublin Airport could potentially grow to 55 million passengers. And its recommendation was for an independent third terminal. Um, it's understood. You know, some people say that the government maybe might have been close to agreeing to that, but then obviously COVID happened, and that threw all potential plans out the window. Mm. Because, like. Paul, it doesn't matter how much we we all would like Mm. to expand regional airports Mm. and kind of, you know, push more business down the country to Shannon, Cork and Belfast and all that. Dublin Airport's where it's at. Talk to me a little bit about the numbers uh, of airlifts that come through Dublin Airport, how much we depend on that. For, for our capacity out of the Republic of Ireland, 85% of air capacity goes through Dublin Airport. And for a country our size, we have some great regional airport infrastructure across Cork, Shannon, Knock, Kerry, just to name those four. But the population base where they're located just doesn't merit the investment from the airline's perspective. So whilst it may work from a political perspective or a regional policy viewpoint, The reality is that the airlines want to put aircraft in where they know the capacity is, where they know businesses are located, where they know that the the traffic is going to reflect the new route that they start. And that is going to be Dublin. Dublin is 85% and it's likely to stay at 85%. And even if we're looking at an argument to say, well, if Dublin is getting to max capacity, why don't we reposition that to the regions? That's not an option in in terms of the decision making. The decision making lies with those airlines, and they will put the aircraft where the where the population base is and where the demand is, and the demand is in Dublin. Mm. And then, when you're looking at the possibility of a third terminal, then Ellie and listen to what Paul's saying. There is, if it's there, we will get the carriers. But if it's not there, how do the DAA propose to deal with increased activity? Well, they have plans that they believe that they can just increase capacity, build new hangars on the existing facilities, and they believe that that is that will deal with the capacity. and And they have said that you know fifty five million is is a long, long way off. So their focus, I suspect, at the moment is more getting to that forty million number. Okay, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston, and I'm here in studio with. Ellie Donnelly, who's Senior Business Reporter from the Business Post, and Paul Hackett, President of the Irish Travel Agents Association. Um, 
Paul, yeah, just coming back to you, sometimes I feel like Dublin Airport is kind of like symbolic of where the nation is at. You know, if you think of mm. the 70s and the 80s when we went to the airport, it seemed very exotic. We were taking off, we're getting off the island. And then we had like the 90s and the noughties where we couldn't deal with it. Terminal 2 was built, nobody wanted it. Mm. And even in COVID and those figures you were looking at last week, Ellie, like the airport wasn't ready to rebound in the at the pace it did and that was the same for the country like that's why the the airport was doing all that but like I was listening to Danny McCoy earlier in the week talking about we need to build these infrastructural pieces now it's sort of like that isn't it where there's a, there's a perfect solution mm. the government could push forward uh, and yet we're still not there yet in terms of embracing these projects yeah I think I think I think it's a no-brainer we're going to get to those numbers at a point uh, when it's crystal ball stuff and Dublin Airport as you said like you know and we would go out there and we would wave off the rallies and all of that sort of stuff and if you think of Terminal 1 Terminal 1 isn't Terminal 1 Terminal 1 is the old terminal building the bit that's added on for the A gates the B gates then the new extension for Ryanair and yes I'm sure as interim plans the DAA are very well thought through in terms of what they can do and what more capacity they can create at Terminal 1 and Terminal 2 but you need more gates. Like when we landed last week, as is the case, I'm sure, from loads of people who land in Dublin, you can sit on the aircraft for a period of time before you get to the gate to disembark the aircraft. So, you know, airport capacity is one thing. The number of gates is another. The number of stands, as they call them in the airfield, is another issue. So, you know, to me, we do need, like, we could we, we could talk about the housing crisis and we could talk about the lack of foresight and the lack of planning and what's required there and the difficulty of turning on the tap quickly enough for these capital major infrastructural projects. So whether it's Terminal 3 within the existing airfield, because there's capacity within the airfield and within Terminal 1 and 2 in the space where the church is, in the space where some of the car park lands are to put a third With, terminal in there. Without buying additional Without land. buying additional land. Or they move and they look at the option of, you know, handing it over to somebody else to operate. So there's plenty of options, but it, it is going to happen, that's for sure. On that issue of handing it over to somebody else to operate, like, is that commonplace across the world where a private operator comes into an existing one which might have government, you know, running? Does that happen, Ellie, across... It, it's certainly not unusual. I think we're just not used to it in an Irish context. If you look at Heathrow Airport, it's probably one of the busiest airports in Europe. And yet that's not owned by the British government. It is owned by different investment funds, including the Australian Retirement Trust are one of the investors in it. And then it is, you know, subject to regulation by the Civil Aviation Authority. But I just think in Ireland, we're just such a critical piece of infrastructure. We're probably just not used to the idea that it wouldn't be state owned. OK, Paul, I might leave the final word on all of this to you because a lot of your members will be depending on Dublin <laughs> Airport this uh, this summer. Uh, what's your solution to the car park? If Ryanair had their way, they'd open up the fields. <laughs> what do people do if yeah. they can't park the car? They'd go back to Mullingar and get a bus. I, I think I think the messaging around the car park is don't turn up at the airport and expect to find a car space. Book ahead if you have a holiday or, or travel plans in place. And if you can't get par- car parking in advance, look at alternative arrangements. Like it is shameful that we don't have airport links and this is more the infrastructural piece. Like we have the single busiest bus depot in the country. Where? Dublin Airport. We don't have a rail link at Dublin Airport and we have car parking. What, with, with regard to the car parking, the Competition Consumer Protection Commission need to move on this. Dublin Airport completed the purchase of that site in February. We're now June. So really and truthfully, once again, within the state, we need to nudge people along. It's correct that we have processes so that we don't have, you know, one unit controlling everything. But if they are the only show in town and consumers are, you know, 
not getting the service they want in terms of car parking, well, something has to give because mm. the, the field isn't the solution. Ellie, is the field not the solution? The field is definitely not okay. the solution. Well, look, I'm going to have you both back after the summer to see if everything went as swimmingly as you promised us, Paul. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That's Paul Hackett, president of the Irish Travel Agents Association and Ellie Donnelly, senior business reporter from the Business Post. Thanks. Both very much for joining me today. Thanks, man. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, leadership is a very hot topic in today's political landscape. When we return, we'll delve into why politicians like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson remain popular despite their many well-known political challenges. Stay tuned for the insights of a renowned international leadership expert. That's all right after this short break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, we seem to be living in a world where, can we say bad leadership or certainly question, questionable leadership traits are, are seen to be a sort of badge of honour for some people, whether it's Donald Trump uh, over in America or Boris Johnson in the UK or even Vladimir Putin in Russia. Some of the leadership traits that are dominating public discourse are say, not the traditional leadership skills that we might be used to. But how can we change this and what can we look at when we're trying to decide our leaders. So I'm delighted today to be joined by Neil Jurd to try and assess this uh, issue. Neil spent the early part of his career in the British Army at the prestigious Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. And since leaving the military, he's built another career, which is a training company on leadership. And he's also written a best-selling book called The Leadership Book. Neil, you're very welcome to News Talk. Um, hi, Mandy, and thanks very much for having me. Delighted. So, um, I want to start with it. We'll get into analysing various different leaders of our time now, but I want to start with that very basic question. What are the basic traits that make a good leader, Neil? Well, when people ask this, I, I, they're always quite surprised when I say kindness. Um, I, I think kindness and uh, um, a, a willingness and an ability to connect with people is really important. But Probably the most important thing that a leader can have is purpose. I think having a absolute clarity about what you're trying to achieve uh, is essential because um, it kind of gives you a reason for doing what you're doing, and it, it gives gives clarity for other people about what they get by by following you or electing you. So, so purpose above anything. Mm. So one of those traits I wouldn't necessarily apply to many of the, let's say, more high profile leaders I mentioned earlier, um, and that's kindness. I think they do have purpose in that both Donald Trump and also Boris Johnson are seen as disruptors in a system that is the political system we're talking about and in some cases the business system. But you wouldn't really say that either of those men come across as terribly kind people would you no no I, I wouldn't in fact actually I wrote a section in where, when I was writing my book I thought I need to explain this you know I need I need to explain why we've got the, the uh, so many seemingly people in charge at the moment who who don't lead in the way that I would suggest leadership should be done um, and uh, I, that that section of the book I called false leadership and, and I, uh, I I talk about manipulation and domination not being the same things as leadership Le leadership is a f for me a force for good mm. and um, good leadership makes the world a better place and w when you have seen good leadership that will always be the case you get happy people you get productive teams um, things are just generally 
generally better. They feel better. I, I don't think that the leaders that you're describing necessarily have that effect. They're, they're very polarising. Mm. Um, their, their tendency is always to create an other, you know, an, an, an enemy, an opposition, someone to to stop coming over in boats or someone to fight or someone you need to build a wall to keep out. But there's always, it's a very divisive form of leadership and um, it, it it's probably driven by negative emotions. It, it harnesses the negative emotions of, of others. So I don't, it's not leadership as I would see it. It's certainly being in charge and it's certainly getting what you want but it doesn't fit the definition of, of leadership that I would use. Mm. And just to, to examine that secondary issue you mentioned there, purpose. So if you look at a leader like Donald Trump, is his purpose ultimately power? It, it looks like it, doesn't it? I mean, mm. when, you, when you see how, almost how ungracefully, uh, you know, again, the three leaders that you've mentioned, they, they don't leave power easily. Mm. But, I mean, Vladimir Putin has... Um, uh, hung on, e- even by cha- changing where the power lies to the to the period where he he was prime minister, and then before coming back to being president, and then changing the constitution so he could stay president. I mean, that's a pretty determined effort to to stay in power. Mm. Um, Trump appears <laughs> appears to look. You know, he's, that guy's not going away, is he? He's he's um, he, he's he's there in the shadows all the time. And uh, um, let's let's be honest, Boris didn't leave gracefully. So uh, so yeah, it feels like power is more important than purpose. That that would be that that's how it looks to me. Yeah, for sure. And as you say, you know, the legacy of that type of leadership can lead to discontent, and that's exactly what you're seeing in America um, at the moment—a very desi- a divided society. But. I wanted to ask you this question. It's been really bothering me uh, for the last couple of weeks. How do those leaders who are operating in in in, in such a kind of dis- destructive way in, in some in some instances, um, how do they how are they managing to maintain political support? How are they still attracting voters? So they're not the traditional leaders we would see or, or be used to. And I would think that the part of a leader that's very important is trust um, and belief and credibility. But notwithstanding all the political wrangles each one of those get themselves into, they're still getting a lot of popular support. Why do you think that is? Does that say a lot about our society and what we expect of leaders now? Yeah, possibly, well, how, how little we expect of leaders, or, or how um, how tolerant we've come of we've become for for bad behaviour. But I, I also think it's th- this polarisation that um, you, you mentioned and I mentioned earlier. I think is really important. I think um, people are very much divided on party lines, mm. um, and any attack on the leader of your party is, is, seems to be taken as an attack on you know, almost almost core beliefs that can't be challenged. So people will sit behind, people will back a leader, however bad they are, it, it would seem, in this model, um, because that's the leader of their party, of their organisation. You know, mm. it's kind of a good versus bad, a very, very polarised approach to leadership. Mm-hmm. And um, when you look at people like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump as a, a person who can you know, help people to bring out their own leadership skills. What do you look at and say that those men have in common when it comes to how they lead? 
Well, they both, it's interesting, isn't it? Because both of them created their own profile quite extensively before they moved into politics. So, so with um, uh, with Donald Trump, you've got The Apprentice, which um, I, I think was huge in the States. Uh, or not, not that he wasn't known anyway, but I, but I think that kind of affable television presence being well known in every in every house and of course boris johnson did the same with have i got news for you mm. so, so their own the familiarity we had and there'd be some psychology behind that but they they were familiar figures to us they feel like people that we that we know um you know they seem kind of uh, well I, i'm not i'm not sure trump ever played likable but they certainly seem like people we know and um, figures that have been fed to us as a, as approved figures, pe- pe- people who were okay to be in our lives, mm. and I think that set them up very well for uh, for then moving into into leadership positions. You know, I remember watching Boris Johnson on Have I Got News for You years ago and thinking, you know, he seemed he seemed a very affable, likable, quite funny guy, um, and of course it is funny until this is the person making the. <laughs> the big decisions. Yeah, and then there's there's serious consequences for, for ordinary people like you and I as a result. Yeah. It's interesting what you say there about their trajectory and, and how they developed a persona before they went into politics. You know, uh, Silvio Berlusconi passed away this week also and he almost shared that same trajectory where, you know, he came from business then into the media and then into politics and was able to reinvent himself four different times um, and despite all of his uh, difficulties in the courts and, and all the charges against him politically, he was still accepted back by the Italian people on four separate occasions. But look, let's move away from the, the negative and the bad here. And uh, are there any leaders that you've seen in recent years who kind of you've you've said, actually, you know what, there there's a there's a decent person. They're doing a good job. They're a good political leader. Y- yes. Yeah, very much so. And, and um, in fact, I. I wrote an article for Business Leader last year about Jacinda Ardern, who, um, for, and I know she, I mean, she's quite controversial. In if you read the New Zealand press, you'll see that not everyone's a fan. Um, but my feeling is that she embodied the idea of leading for the good of the the vast majority, leading for the good of the people. Uh, she she was willing to to make decisions. Um, that seem to serve the again seem to serve the people rather than um so i've always felt that with uh with people like trump and boris johnson it's not really clear what they're trying to achieve mm. it's, it's always felt like it's rather in the shadows what interests they're serving um whereas i, I felt that jacinda arden's um leadership was much more clear you know she was doing what what appeared to be the right thing and making uh early clear decisions and being quite strong about it but of course her politics are very different uh, and i wonder whether that's uh you know whether w- what we're looking at there's, there's you know, there are many things here she's she's not a an uh, an aging man like the other three that we've discussed uh she's in a very different part of the world of course mm. um but she's also um a a, a, a labor um a, a left-wing yeah. And as you say uh, in, in that article, a lot of her impact was because she put a lot of effort into connecting and engaging with people. More more of that and on. But if you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson and I'm speaking with Neil Jurd, who's OBE and author of the leadership book and for me former army officer and trainer in the Sandhurst Academy in the UK. 
So just just back to that issue of connecting and engaging with people. Um, that is an important part, isn't it, of the qualities that somebody needs to have in the modern era to be a leader. So can you just talk to me about um, how somebody might kind of approach that issue and maybe not necessarily see it as part of a leadership skill set as we would have in the traditional way uh, in the past? Yeah, and I, I would say it absolutely is the, the core of leadership. I did a... Um, uh, a, a talk which is on YouTube, a sort of one of those doodle talks where, you, where I explain in seven minutes what leadership is. And I sum it up as being about connection and direction. Um, direction, know where you're going, that kind of purpose thing. But connection, build great relationships, get to know people. Time spent having a cup of tea with people, sitting down, understanding how they feel, what they what they care about. Um, learning about their family situation, wh- where they come from, what teams they support. That that building a really good relationship with people is so important. Um, mm. uh, and, and people don't think that. People get busy. People think leadership's about output and productivity. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder, sorry to cut across there, Neil, I wonder, I wonder, did you hit the nail on the head the very beginning where you said time spent? Is that what's lost here sometimes that we're all so busy that we actually don't spend time to connect with people and listen and learn? Yeah, we we think we should be doing something and an organisation. I remember on a uh, selection event that I was running for um, for army officer selection, seeing a, a young graduate entry lad shouting at his group come on red group let's just do something hmm. and of course what followed was not particularly useful because it wasn't there was there was no plan or no description of what to do but a lot of organizations work in that way they they just do something they just keep keep on doing people go to meetings back to back um process becomes more important than purpose and for me that's that's nonsense stepping stepping back taking time to think um understanding this what the situation is have things changed are things going to change um and constantly reassessing what you're trying to achieve that's so important there's a there's a very famous irish book uh, by lee dunn it's called goodbye to the hill and there's a great line in it which always stuck with me and it was look everybody can't be the cowboys somebody has to be the indians so can can all of us be a leader or are there some people who are just intrinsically designed to be leaders or can you teach it can you teach leadership uh, i've got the image of a, of a cowboy in my head at the moment but, um, but yeah you absolutely you can teach it uh, anybody can improve their leadership i mean this is what i this is what i've been doing for the last 14 or 15 years since i left the army and i've seen people transform um if you understand it's really just about having something clear which you're trying to achieve that clarity of purpose uh and connecting with people that's really not hard Mm. Uh, it's where people think that leadership is about status and position and playing a part and they get hung up on words like strategy it's a strategic level thing and they they start to believe their own legend and they they move away from that authentic version of themselves the, mm. the version that's just a real person um and it 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 gets messy but anyone can lead and honestly you, you if you just if you just make a bit of time to read about leadership or to study leadership um your leadership will improve the problem is most people don't most, yeah. most people have no leadership training in 
very senior positions. Yeah, and it is, it is. It's a skill like everything else that you can learn. Look, we're running out of time, but I want to ask you one final, final question on this, if I can. I was reading about um, one of the leadership development courses you did and you, you taught yourself to learn the names of all 30 delegates on the course in the first hour. Now, a very good friend of mine is terrible with names, gets everything mangled. So can you give us some tips about how somebody might uh, might do that? Just remember a name, because that's important, isn't it, when you're making a connection and engagement? with someone yeah and I, I would say my tip is just try really hard P- people often ask that on courses I, I i it's almost a party trick i use the first hour when we've got a course with like you know i have a few people running groups and i'll oversee the course and um it's almost a party trick that i'll know their names after an hour but i'm not i don't have a particularly good memory um i don't have clever tricks um i just make it my mission to know who they are because then we feel connected and they'll learn much better so i absolutely prioritize it as the most important thing i can do is is to know who they are i mean then there's little there's little tricks i'll actually write in a book i'll i'll go around the groups i'll i'll look at everyone some will be easy it's always a bit harder where you've got a couple of people who look similar um so I might give myself a little clue on day one and I'll focus on, you know, I'll focus much harder on um, differentiating between you know, the two guys who are the same height, maybe the same sort of body shape and similar hair pattern or whatever. They, they might take a bit more work. But, yeah, mostly um, just focus like mad on it. It's just yeah. about pay- paying attention, really, Neil. It's 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 a simple but a very useful piece of advice. Unfortunately, the clock has run out on us and I'd love to talk to you for much longer, but uh, that's it for today, unfortunately. That was Neil Jurd, OBE author of the Leadership Book and former Army officer and trainer at the Sandhurst Academy in the UK. Neil, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Mandy. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk. Coming up, the Financial Times have conducted a special investigation into the founder of one of London's best-known hedge funds and it's causing a lot of problems across the water. Antonio Cundi from the Financial Times will tell us more about the investigation and the fallout after this short break. You're welcome back to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, Finally today, there was a very special investigation by the Financial Times recently and it uncovered shocking allegations of sexual assault and harassment within a prominent London hedge fund company. Antonia Cundy was part of that investigation team and she's here to tell us more about the investigation itself and the fallout since its publication. Antonia, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thank you for having me. Now, Antonia, a lot of our listeners won't be aware of a gentleman called Crispin Uddy. Can you explain exactly who he is and talk to us a little bit about the company that he founded? Yes, sure. Um, so it's Crispin Odie. It's pronounced Odie. Um, <laughs> don't Sorry. Worry. Um, no, no, no. No reason you'd know. Um, and he is a very, or has been for several decades, a very high profile character on the City of London's hedge fund circuit. Um, he established his company, Odie Asset Management, back in 1991, and he's run it ever since. Um, and he's developed a reputation over the years for being a bit of a maverick in that world. So some of that comes from him as an individual. He dresses in a very old school attire. He is known for having a pretty voracious appetite and liking long lunches um, in the working week. 
but also for his, you know, his kind of investing approach. So he's very high risk. Um, his returns have been quite volatile. Some years his bets on the market have done him very, very well. Um, and other years they've had pretty devastating losses. So, yeah, he, he's quite a, a kind of outlandish um, but very well-known figure in the city of London. Mm. And what about his background? Uh, what led him to kind of set up this uh, ODA asset management and was it successful from, from the get-go? So he um, is actually from a Yorkshire family who were kind of big names in the tanning industry, so the leather industry, um, way back when. And his family actually, you know, they used to have a sort of stately home, very large house, um, but the fortunes crumbled. Um, and when he'd graduated from university, he had to sell the family ancestral home in order to, you know, stop them going completely broke. Um, and so he went into finance, um, first working at Bearings, um, where he again developed this reputation as quite a kind of solo player, but um, not the full-blown reputation that he later developed. And then he moved away from bearings when it started to um, move away from star managers. And that was a move that Chris Benodi didn't really like. So he decided to set out on his own and set up shop. Um, but yeah, it definitely stems back to him wanting to kind of reverse the family fortunes and make back that money. Mm. And you mentioned that he was a maverick and seen as a, an outlier and a bit of a gambler. He did take kind of, you know, good decisions that went against the grain. So, for example, in 2007, I think he was sort of ahead of the curve in predicting that the banks wouldn't be, um, you know, that the, that the things would turn for the banks before others had seen that. Yes, yeah, he did. Absolutely. Um, he, as, as you say, um, around the financial crisis, he bet against the banks and caught called that very early and actually in our article um, one of uh, his former colleagues described the scene where he sort of walks in and makes this massive call saying you know bet against the banks and everyone's shocked and startled because at the time the economy is riding really high and no one really sees it coming but he did Um, and I think that's because he was known for having quite a kind of big picture outlook on the market so he wasn't sort of a stock picker but he kind of looked at what he thought of the economy or the way the world was going Mm. um but yeah more recently he's gained a bit of renown for his bets against the pound um after brexit and after the most recent troubles um which have also done him yeah done him very well yeah and what, what sort of net worth are we talking about so it's hard to say what his total net worth is because it fluctuates quite a lot depending mm. on um, what bets he's currently made. But we know that at Odie, um, he was managing, as a fund manager, he was looking after about 1.2 billion US dollars um, of assets. Mm. And of that, about 600 million was his own money that he was actually managing for himself. Okay. Um, outside of that, you know, we know that he has multiple homes. Um, he used to be married to a woman called Nicola Pease, who herself is in her own right an incredibly impressive um, financier and yes yeah, sizable amount of wealth to uh, be sure yeah I'd imagine and I, I, I'm also sensing he's probably got a lot of big names politically does he support a particular party and yeah so he's donated over the years um, really substantial sums in the hundreds of thousands to the Conservative Party uh, including specific ministers such as Boris Johnson, um, his brother Joe Johnson, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, his constituency. 
And he's also um, donated really large sums to anti-European movements, um, so like the UKIP party, for example. Okay, yeah, well, look, I think we've got a good sense of the man and the company. He's a, he's a gambler, larger-than-life character, well-connected politically and in a business sense. Can you just take us through a little bit about the investigation that the Financial Times conducted? And particularly, I'm interested in the period that was covered. Yes, so we looked at um, how Chris Minodi had behaved towards women over the last three decades. Um, the incidents that we reported on covered a period of 25 years, um, dating back to 1998 um, through to 2021. And we found and detailed the allegations from 13 women who said that he had sexually harassed or assaulted them. Um, of those 13, eight of them said he had assaulted them. And, you know, we, we won't go into the details of some of the uh, alleged incidents because they are quite graphic. But um, I suppose what we really want to give a sense to our listeners is that this period is from 98, as you say, to 2021. So we're not talking about, you know, a legacy issue from the 80s or the 70s. Um, it's not the Wolf of Wall Street like this. This is present day. Yeah, no, not at all. It's definitely not a legacy issue. It's very much in the present day. Mm. Um, and, you know, many of the women we spoke to, um, their incidents had happened within the last five, ten years. Um, but I think what unites them all across that long period of time is the pattern of behavior that we saw um, in his predatory um, yeah, his, his predatory behaviour where, you know, he would sort of target um, vulnerable women or those who for other reasons might not speak out against him and the way in which he found and engineered situations in which he might be alone with those women or brought them into his trust to then violate that trust, whether that was in the workplace or in social situations. Um, it, was, it was very kind of startling and quite shocking to see that pattern of behaviour emerge. Um, but yeah, I know that they are very much current um, as well as more historic examples. Yeah, his pattern of behaviour um, is, is is you know, very disturbing. But I suppose even more disturbing is the sense you get from the investigation that you conducted that there was a great awareness of this, it seems, within the company. Yeah, and I think that's a big question for what remains of the firm, although at this current stage in time... Um, there's been some more news this morning that it looks like the firm is um, probably going to dismantle um, their in advance discussions to sort of break it up. Mm. Um, so what remains of the firm is, is unsure. But I think the culpability is a, is a big question um, for those remaining because as many of the women detailed to us, his Chris Bonodi's behaviour in the office was completely normalised and they felt like they couldn't raise concerns. Many of them felt they were given kind of coded warnings so that they would tolerate that behavior. And that's definitely um, a big part of the problem. And I also think within the wider industry, lots of women who've got in contact with us, um, not speaking about Odie, but saying, you know, this speaks to their experience in the finance sector more generally. Mm. Yeah, and you mentioned there that the, the firm announced this week a, a breaking up of, of certain parts of it and we'll come to the consequences of the investigation in a second but I just want to focus a little bit more on the why now, if you like. What do you think was, was it about this time that prompted these women who spoke uh, very openly to you and some of them, I think one of them allowed names to go forward. Uh, what, what, what prompted them to do it at this juncture? Um, I think 
a, n- a number of reasons, some of them personal to the individuals. But I think if you're looking at a sort of more public um, reason for that, Chris Minodi was charged in 2020 with um, indecent assault. And that was from a more historic incident. So a woman said that uh, he had assaulted her in 1998 at his home. Um, he was cleared in the court, so he was acquitted of that charge um, in 2021. And I think for many women, that really outraged them because they recognized in the court case um, complainant's description, they recognized behavior that had happened to them and that they had been on the receiving end of. And also, when Crispin was acquitted of that indecent assault charge, um, the judge's comments were quite heavily criticized by some women's rights groups because he said that the court case complainant had a you know sort of strong imagination or words to that effect um and he was quite critical of her and i think for many women that also really enraged them so they felt like now is the time they wanted to speak so when we contacted them they decided to yeah, I mean, I think the judge's comments were particularly jarring for a lot of people. He said he could go away with his reputation intact. And what surprised me even more was his alleged um, behaviour after that judgment. He seemed to go back and just start it all again. Yes, yeah, so exactly to your point of, you know, is this historic or is this contemporary? Um, I think what shocked quite a lot of readers was also reading that after the court case, um, we actually detailed two examples of um, him behaving in a similar manner with two women. And he, yeah, he, he lunged at one um, and assaulted the other in the months after his acquittal. Um, so I think that really just shows how compulsive his predatory behaviour is. Yeah. And look, when you're conducting an investigation like this, obviously it's very important to talk to, to the victims, get their side of the story, but presumably you had to reach out to the company and to him. What were their initial reactions to you? Did you find them cooperative? Um, I, the, the company responded, um, as you would expect them to, and they said that the picture we painted doesn't, um, is not a workplace culture that they recognize. And we reflected that in the article. Um, Crispin responded personally through lawyers. Um, I also spoke to him on the phone before that. Uh, I wouldn't class that conversation as cooperative, but I suppose that's understandable. Mm. Um, but no, he, he told me he thought the allegations were rubbish, uh, that he'd read our email where we went into detail about them and asked him to comment. Um, but he didn't respond in a detailed manner. He just said they were rubbish. Um, and yeah, since then, he has still strenuously denied them. And what has happened to him and what has happened at the company since you published these allegations? So the response and the fallout to the investigation has been pretty swift and pretty sharp. So within hours, um, some key financial institutions had cut ties. By the time that extended to a couple of days, there were even more. Um, earlier this week, the firm was in a bit of a difficult situation because they all their prime brokers, which a hedge fund needs to operate, um, had said they would no longer work with them or had served their notice saying they would no longer work with them. So that puts them in a very difficult spot. Um, but I think most importantly, on the Saturday after the investigation came out on the Thursday, um, the firm, the executive committee at the firm met and they decided to remove Crispin as a partner. So he was removed from his own firm, uh, which he founded back in 1991. And then today, the most recent development is that we've, uh, the company has announced that it's looking to rehouse 
some of its funds and fund managers. So that would essentially mean that it's probably going to be dismantled and um, various fund managers will hope that they can take the money they manage into a different company. Mm. Interesting, though, he didn't step down. He had to be removed still. So presumably he's Mm. still fighting still fighting the fight. You briefly mentioned it earlier there. There's other industries that have had their Me Too moment, if you like, and there's been, um, you know, an exposure which has led to uh, more people, you know, and more companies being involved. In and I'm thinking of the, the entertainment industry and what happened in Hollywood and everything. But do you think that this is a defining moment in terms of looking at, I suppose, corporate banking and what's happening there in that space. Like, honestly, a lot of people would think that those, um, that type of activity and some of the things that you describe in the article are of a bygone era, but it's really not. Do you think this is start the start of something? Have other people come forward about other institutions to you? I think it's definitely a watershed moment. Um, you know, as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been you know, such a high profile um, case for this in the finance industry in London um, and certainly not one that's led to such a senior, you know, executive or founder being so swiftly rebuked and removed and essentially, yeah, fully disgraced and taken away from the industry. Um, But whether it's the start of something, I don't know. That's more hard to say. I think for women still you know, the barriers to coming forward are still very, very scary. Mm. Um, and I think definitely it has certainly resonated with a lot of women. Um, we've had a number of people get in touch and say that this speaks to them on a wider level beyond Odie about the experience they had as a junior woman working in finance and they're, you know, very grateful that we've exposed it. Um, I do think it will give women more power and more assurance that they can speak up about this, whether that's raising it internally. And if that doesn't work, then coming to the press um, or going to the police. But uh, yeah, I would I would like to think it will lead more women to feel that they do have a voice. Um, but it's probably too early to say whether it's the the start of a bigger movement. Well, if anyone wants to read that investigation, it is available on the Financial Times website. Um, but for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Antonia Kundi of the Financial Times. Antonia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Thanks to all of today's guests for their time and insights. Also, thanks to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Simon Keane and Stephen Daunt on research and Hugo De Silva on sound. Next week, with talks of a new political party here and one potentially in the UK, we're going to examine what exactly is involved in setting up and running a political party in Ireland in 2023. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can do so by email at takingstockatnewstalk.com. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.